This time, let me ask you to open your Bibles to the 14th chapter of the book of Acts as we continue um, going through this missionary uh, history manual and uh, catch-all for everything else. And this Sunday, we're going to look at grounding new converts as the missionaries in the first journey and return back to the mother church uh, with a report in Antioch. Uh, I'm going to begin reading in verse 19 so that we can maintain the context and we'll read to the end of the chapter. Hear now the word of the Lord. But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city supposing he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Atalia. And from there... Uh, where they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we do pray that you would open our eyes this morning to behold the glorious truth of your word and that we may be drawn to it, that your spirit would massage our hearts in such a way that we feed upon it, that our lives are shaped by it, that we're challenged by it, convicted by it, encouraged by it, strengthened by it. And we ask you to do that because only you can. No preacher can do that. Uh, no teacher can do that. That is your purview. That is your work. And so, Lord, we honor you and ask you to work in us that which is well-pleasing in your sight. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This passage before us today gives us bright insight and brief insight into the way that Paul followed up on new converts and how he strengthened them and established them. And also, it gives us a pattern of leadership for the congregation he had founded. There's also a warning in this passage about enduring hardships uh, that is particularly powerful in light of the suffering that both Paul and Barnabas had endured in the preceding narrative. Example and exhortation are brought together in, uh, of course, the Apostle Paul. 
Their return to Antioch in Syria marks the end of the first missionary journey and provides the opportunity for encouraging the church with the news of what God had done through them in their missionary efforts. Whatever their success in winning Jews, the whole campaign is evaluated in terms of opening a door of faith to the Gentiles. This indicates a new and more extensive impact of the gospel message of the Gentile world than we have seen thus far in the book of Acts. So Paul and Barnabas preached the good news in Derby, and a large number of disciples were added to the church. In the present, uh, the, the verb here for disciples, this is the same one Jesus used uh, in the Gospels, and a disciple is a learner, a student, one who follows, one who is teachable, one who learns, and one who follows. In the present context, it implies a process of teaching and training that goes beyond evangelism. Now, I know all of you know this verse, but it's good to go back and look at it. Hold your finger in Acts 14, turn to Matthew chapter 28. And I want to look at the Great Commission, often referred to as the Great Omission of the church. But in Matthew 28, Notice in verse 18, Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and do what? Make disciples of all nations. Part of that discipleship is baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, but also teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That is a definition of evangelism, and evangelism doesn't stop with simply sharing the gospel message. Evangelism, to truly evangelize people, to truly preach the gospel to people, and disciple the nations means also to teach and train them. New converts need to be taught because they have stepped into a whole new world and they're just beginning to discover things that most of us take for granted. Sometimes I think it would really be helpful for us to remember what it was like after we were first converted. I remember when I was first converted, I was convinced that I was never going to sin again. I walked around, I was on a spiritual high, so to speak, and I just felt like this is great. I've been born again, I'm living in a whole new culture, world, and universe, and I'm never going to sin. And that lasted two days. Not that long, really, but I didn't know what sin was so very well. But it lasted about two days, that spiritual high. And then I sat down with my guitar and tried to write, write a song called Post-Salvation Blues, because I had them, big time. But remember what it's like to be a new convert and when people initially believe the gospel they need to be discipled there needs to be in place in this church an intentional 
movement toward discipling new members, and we've always emphasized that our community groups are a great place for discipleship to occur. And, and sometimes it may be one-on-one. -on -one. You're discipling another person. Uh, I think they use the phrase mentoring now. Uh, that's an okay phrase, but I prefer the biblical phrase that what the church should be doing is making new disciples and discipling converts teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And so Paul invested his time and energy in these new converts. And the ministry in Derby appears to have been unhindered by Jewish opposition from Antioch and Iconium, and presumably the state in which they left Paul convinced his opponents that he was no longer a threat. You know, when Paul left Lystra, right before he left, he was stoned with big rocks. And I'm sure his body was beaten. I'm sure he was bruised, maybe even bones broken. Some even think he possibly died and experienced resurrection. He sort of indicates that in a Corinthian passage. But Derby lay on the eastern border of Galatia, and instead of continuing further east and reaching Syria through Cilicia, Paul and Barnabas return to Lystra, Iconium and Antioch, the very place he was stoned. Can you imagine being in Derby for a while, seeing a great response to the gospel, and then thinking, all right, we need to move on. Let's go back to where they stoned me. That's kind of counterintuitive, isn't it? But Paul had such a passion for the converts that had responded to his ministry that he wanted to go there and strengthen the disciples and encourage them to remain true to the faith. The, the um, vision of helping the new converts superseded his concern for his own safety. I doubt very seriously if any of us would have wanted to go back to the scene of our stoning and where we faced our greatest opposition. But Paul did that, and he did it to help the new converts continue in the faith, to continue with the Lord, to continue in the grace of God. And the journey was necessary because continuing persecution made it incredibly difficult for these new converts not only to survive, but also to grow and flourish. So it took a great deal of courage for them to do this. Confining their ministry to believers in these places of conflict, they didn't stir up any further opposition. Two further visits to these South Galatian churches are recorded later on in the book of Acts. And uh, it's likely that Paul's letter to the Galatians was written in the period before Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem Council. And so here we have a brief record before us of the sort of pastoral care offered to this newly formed congregation. Paul's role as a pastor is more fully presented in chapter 20, verses 18 and following, but we know from his letters that Paul believed God would keep those in his hand who were genuinely converted and keep them from falling. We know that. Paul makes that clear over and over again. If you're converted to the true faith, he who has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. But Paul also knew that 
His own prayers and his teaching were part of the process by which God would sustain them. One of the things that we believe and emphasize here is the security of the believer. That God preserves those who truly believe the gospel and believe in Jesus Christ. But we also believe that God preserves the believers as they persevere in the faith. That we are responsible to continue in the faith. And we're admonished over and over again in the scriptures to do so. And the process by which God does that is through the means of grace administered through the church. And through the leaders in the church. Strengthening is mentioned again in chapter 15, together with encouraging as a ministry to believers. To encourage someone means to come alongside them. Para kaleo is the word encourage. Para means beside. Kaleo means to call, to call alongside, to bear their burdens, to be there, to support, to lift up, to pray for, to uh, infuse, as it were, courage in uh, them. Strengthening the churches was a goal of both Paul and Barnabas and Silas later. In 1422, it's specifically the souls of the disciples that need strengthening, meaning the disciples in their inner lives or individual selves before God. I want you to hold your finger in Acts 14 and look over in Ephesians chapter 3 where Paul prays for the church at Ephesus to be strengthened. But I want you to notice uh, as he prays, it'd be helpful if I was in Ephesians and not Philippians. Here we are. Uh, Ephesians chapter 3 verse 14, Paul says this, For this reason... I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in where? Your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Isn't it amazing that Paul says we need supernatural, Holy Spirit-empowered strength to be able to understand and grasp the length, depth, breadth, and height of Christ's love. You will never understand the way Jesus loves you and the way Jesus has demonstrated that he loves you. The love of God and the love of Christ will not be preeminent in your life unless you are strengthened by the Spirit. You need spiritual strength to grasp what? That Jesus loves you. Isn't that remarkable? And that is what Paul prayed for those converts in Ephesus, and that is what is he, he is encouraging here, that we need spiritual strength to know that we are loved. 
There is an individual strengthening and there is a corporate strengthening which can be accomplished by a ministry of exhortation. And we find this emphasis in some of Paul's letters as well as in the book of Acts. But he also gives them a warning. He says we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Here we have must, day in Greek, refers to the divine plan. And the implication seems to be that the persecution of believers is to be understood as consistent with God's plan, but not uh, an entrance requirement that believers must meet by virtue of their conscience, conscious choice. There's a clear reminder here of the theological context in which the Christian life is to be pursued. And the gospel provides us with a grounded certainty uh, about entering the kingdom of God. And even though it's not explicitly mentioned that much in the book of Acts, it is there. It refers specifically to the restoration of all things associated with the return of Christ and functions as an equivalent for eternal life. Final entrance to the kingdom, into that kingdom, will be through many hardships. And the word for hardships is interesting here. It is the idea of pressure and stress pressing upon you. You ever just feel like it's all closing in on you? The walls are closing in on you. The, the, the pressure is just too much. And that is precisely what the Bible predicted. It will be no different for the disciple than it was for the master. If the world hated him, it will hate you. And the more you become like him, the more the world will hate you. And it is through hardship. Hardly a selling point, huh? Hardly a selling point for Christianity. I remember the first person that ever talked to me about the gospel came to me and said, Tim, you just need to come to Jesus and he'll take all your problems away. I thought, that sounds great. Because, you know, I got a couple of problems. Probably had a lot more than a couple, but that's what I thought. He said, come to Jesus, he'll take all your problems away. About a month after I came to Jesus, I looked at him up and I said, you liar. You liar. I never had any problems until I came to Jesus. Now i got all kinds of problems. And it's true. But it's not abnormal. That is normative. You will suffer. You will work, walk through very hard times. If you look at the quote in your bulletin from J.I. Packer, I wanted to read that because I think it's one of the better, shorter quotes that I've read. He says, trials are designed to overwhelm us with a sense of our own inadequacy and to drive us to cling to him that is Christ more closely. God fills our lives with troubles and perplexities to ensure that we learn to hold him fast. The reason why the Bible spends so much time reiterating that God is a strong rock, a firm defense, a sure refuge and help for the weak, is that God spends so much of his time bringing home to us that we are weak, both mentally and morally. 
and dare not trust ourselves to find or follow the right road. God wants us to feel that our way through life is rough and perplexing so that we may learn, thankfully, to lean on Him. Therefore, He takes steps to drive us out of our self-confidence to trust in Him, to wait upon the Lord. In the light of that, we do not despair. We are not without hope because God is the one on whom we have set our hope. And so, they were counseling, as it were, these new believers. They weren't so much lecturing them, but they were counseling them, telling them that they needed to be grounded in the faith. That is a basic set of beliefs that new converts need to be schooled in. One of the things I would love for every person at Spring Meadows Church is to at least, as a bare minimum, be grounded in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Probably the shortest uh, but most consistent theology uh, for uh, not maybe a pastor or a theologian, but for a lay person, the Westminster Shorter Catechism is amazing. And it just so happens we have somebody teaching that on Wednesday night. His name is Dan Phillips. By the way, Dan, thank you for preaching for me last week. It was great, and I appreciate it. I also appreciate the pastor appreciation gift. Let me say that. I, I sent a note out, but I want to say something personal about that. Because as I try to encourage you, you encourage me, and I want you to know that it helps more than Pam and I can say for you to express your support and encouragement to us. It lifts our spirits and it helps us. Because do we ever get down? Do you? Do you ever get down with what you're doing? Do you ever feel a little depressed? Do you ever wake up on my day is Monday. When I wake up on Monday, I have to ask myself, am I still a believer? It's just Mondays are hard for me because I'm emotionally exhausted from doing this. But to be encouraged means everything. And that's precisely what Paul is mentioning here, <clears throat> doing with these new believers. And so he, he was prepping them, helping them see that this was part of the tribulation through which Christians must pass which was also a theme of messianic teaching and travail pains in the Old Testament. But the genuine Christian encouragement is properly a blend of theology and exhortation and gospel and challenge. Uh, the book of Hebrews gives us a number of passages which emphasize uh, the need for encouragement. In chapter 3, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient? 
So we see they were unable to enter what? The kingdom because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. One of the responsibilities of the leadership, the elders in our church, is to oversee and provide oversight for people in the church to encourage others. We'll get to that more in just a moment. But Paul, in terms of a ministry feature, was strong on, on talking about enduring such hardship. If you look at his own life, read 2 Corinthians sometimes. It's a catalog of Paul's sufferings. And they were constant. And they were incessant. And yet, no one probably did more in the kingdom of God outside of Christ than the Apostle Paul. But one other thing they did before they left where they were encouraging these new converts, grounding them in the faith so that they wouldn't be tossed by every wind of doctrine, was to appoint elders for them in each church. It was clearly to strengthen the believers in their stand for Christ. And to appoint means to stretch out the hand, which came to be used as a signal of appointment to an office. The laying on of hands conveyed by another expression. However, the addition of words with prayer and fasting and committing them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust implies some form of ordination uh, to special responsibility and service. And so ordination has biblical roots. It's the idea of being set apart and called out for a specific responsibility and service. And so Paul understood that when he left, he needed responsible leadership. And so there was always a plurality of elders, which is what we have in Spring Meadows. We have five ruling elders and one teaching elder presently, all equal in power, which is wonderful because it, it saves you from some uh, leader who comes into a church and says, touch not God's anointed, who, who acts as a dictator over everything that occurs in the church. And the wonderful idea behind plurality of leadership in a church is to hold each other accountable, hold each other responsible. If they see me erring either in my personal life or in my teaching and preaching, they have a responsibility to come to me and show me my error. And that we're not captive to one personality. It's one of the things that bothers me about some of the TV preachers and the large churches is they're just there's one leader. Now I'm sure behind the scenes there are more, but the, the one charismatic kind of leader, and I don't mean charismatic in terms of spiritual gifts, I mean gifted charisma person. And so uh, my, my Baptist friends used to tell me back when I was a Baptist, that the first Baptist church that was ever established was the church established on the day of Pentecost. They said, this is a landmark Baptist conviction that we were the first church. I said, well, okay. I'm not sure I buy that. 
But I do know this. The first Presbyterian churches that were started were here by the Apostle Paul. Why? What is the word elder in Greek? Presbyter. Okay? So what is a Presbyterian church? It is a church of presbyters, which means what? The church is governed, led, ruled, shepherded by a plurality of leaders. And you need that ministry to be established into faith, to be strengthened in the That's why you should pray for your elders. You should pray for your pastor, your teaching elder. You should pray for all of us because we have a tremendous responsibility toward you, the flock. And do we ever drop the ball? No. Yeah, we do sometimes. We miss it. We, we mess up just like you do, just like everyone does. And sometimes we need to be confronted. Sometimes we need to be held accountable. But this is the pattern of establishing and planting churches that has occurred in church histories from the beginning. To establish churches with godly plurality of leadership. And so <clears throat> it's relevant today uh, that the sending church... Uh, from Antioch sends Paul and Barnabas out to church plant, to establish churches, and that the elders... Now, these are Gentile churches. Where you had more uh, Jewish churches, there were already elders in the Jewish community. So it's not emphasized so much in Jerusalem, but it is emphasized in these Gentile churches where elders are commissioned and set apart. And so Paul and Barnabas continue into what might be called a wild area, probably little opportunity for evangelism as they go through Pisda. Uh, they had preached the word in Perga, and apparently for the first time, finally they went down to Atalia, which was the adjacent, adjacent port on the Mediterranean coast where they sailed back to Antioch in Syria, where they had been committed by the grace of God and the work they had now completed. And Luke's language here helps us understand more the significance of the commissioning in chapter 13 and verse 3, where they were handed over to the grace of God for the work which they have now completed. This suggests that there was a mission strategy, that there was a very specific plan for the first missionary journey. Here the grace of God refers to both his protective care and to his enablement for them to do ministry. And reporting back was a way of encouraging the believers to see how God's grace had been answering their prayers. And as they reviewed their experiences, Paul and Barnabas were able to see that God's hand in everything was on them in everything that had happened. In particular, what God had done through them was to bring many to faith so that churches were planted and patterns of leadership were established in a very wide area. And a key aspect of this is described in terms of God opening a door to faith to the Gentiles. And although Luke highlighted some success in the ministry to the Jews, it seems to be that the missionary, first missionary campaign is pretty much 
emphasizing the amazing gift of faith to so many Gentiles that it's the focus of the report. Now think about it. These Gentiles were pagan. They had no Old Testament. They had no Judaism to shape their worldview. These are raw pagans believing in the gospel for the first time who knew nothing. And so that is why Paul invested this time in those cities to teach people. And we would do well, I think, as we live in America, as we watch our country, which used to be we're in a post-Christian or uh, post-Christendom concept. In the beginning of our country, there's no doubt any objective historian or social observer would say that the ethic of our country was shaped by the Judeo-Christian tradition. No doubt. The founders believed that. Even if they weren't believers in Christ, they still had borrowed capital of that worldview. But that's gone now. Don't you see that? In our institutions and elsewhere, we're living in a post-Christian culture. So when we as a church begin to take the gospel out, people don't have the capital in the bank to draw to understand what we're talking about. They've never been to church. They've never read a Bible. They've never heard the gospel. They don't know who Jesus is. The last gospel song they heard was, Drop Kick Me Jesus Through the Goalpost of Life. Chris Christopherson. <laughs> So we need to be aware of that. We have to be on our toes as a church and recognize who it is we're to take the gospel to. And a city like this city is a place where the gospel can flourish, but where people need to be followed up and discipled and encouraged. And often the church has allowed parachurch ministries to take that on while we do the other. But a solid, full-orbed, New Testament, or New Covenant church will do it all. We will do it all, and we will do it well. And that is the goal of this church, to make more and better disciples. And so, with this influx of Gentiles, the stage is being set for what's going to happen next week as we come together and look at the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. Because you've got this flood of those kind of people coming into our church. And how can we determine what's acceptable for them to be a part of us? I mean, we have our traditions. We have our ways of understanding. We, we have our mores. We have our ethics. We have all of this. And how are we going to let the other those guys into the church are, are there is there a core basic fundamental group of things that we could require for the church to be one both jew and gentile and we'll see that hammered out n next week which is a watershed moment in many respects in the uh, spreading of the gospel throughout the world but there, there will be a formal statement even regarding the nature of salvation as we come together next week. But what I wanted to say to you, what I wanted to communicate to you today is what I've already said, that Paul and Barnabas spent time 
not only uh, encouraging, but also counseling and discipling and schooling and appointing elders. And they gave new churches leadership teams. They identified persons among the new converts who had leadership gifts, and they set them apart and gave them authority in the new churches. Notice that they appointed elders plural. They didn't set up individuals but a team of elders, a team of pastors. The team approach is very good quality control. Instead of some individuals with all the power, leaders could hold each other accountable. And from 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, we know that these teams were likely to have included elders, deacons, and we know um, that uh, some were part-time, others full-time, uh, and it had to do likely with the size of the congregation. And they entrusted the churches to God. They committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. And so Paul and Barnabas came back to the church that sponsored them and encouraged them with great news. Missions is messy. Church planting is even messier. Uh, it's hard. It's difficult, challenging work. But praise be to God, the best way to reach America or any culture or any country or any city is church planting. Church planting. People need the church. The church is not everything, but it's something. John Calvin used to say, you can't have the God for your father without having the church as your mother tending you. He didn't mean that the way the Catholics mean it, but he means that Catholics, the church is everything. For us, it is secondary, not primary, but it is the means by which God establishes his children. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word today. It is true. It is alive. It's powerful. It has spoken to us, and we pray that you will move us to have compassion, to keep our eyes open for new believers and young believers who need to be nurtured and ministered to and encouraged and mentored in the faith. And we will be careful to make sure that everyone knows you alone should receive glory and honor. Now, Lord, we pray that you will encourage us as we come together to the Lord's table, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.